and I realized that dinosaurs were a gateway drug to science. And what I mean by that is like, Shall we begin into his coming? I can do this all day. Tear down this wall. Ikuzo means let's go. And here we come with serious BD. Uh, I mean, we are going to talk about the big dinosaurs energy. I believe this will be one thought-provoking episode of Ikuzo Unscripted Podcast as we are joined by a di- dinosaur whisperer himself. I doubt there is a dinosaur alive who hasn't heard for, ju- uh, for Dustin Growick. Dustin helped conceive, launch, and build Museum Hack, and he wrote two dinosaur encyclopedias, and he is the host of Science 101. Dustin, are you ready to go genuine, uncensored, and unscripted with us today? I'm so excited, so ready. Uh, I'm, I did bring BDE this morning, per usual. Let's go. <laughs> also, big dinosaur energy, am I right? Yeah, no, exactly. Right, right. Right. Whoops. Look, look, society... Before we start talking about the origin of species, let me ask you about the origin of Dustin Groik, uh, the dinosaur expert. How you became what you are today? Is it a road you took when you got your first dinosaur toy, watched the Jurassic Park, or something that came later somewhere along the way? It definitely came later. I People ask me, oh, you must uh, like love dinosaurs when you were a kid. And I, I like dinosaurs just like any other kid, but it wasn't until I started working at the American Museum of Natural History in New York uh, that I kind of fell back in love with dinosaurs. Like my background uh, academically is anthropology, which is people, right? And then I was working in the museum and we do lots of different types of classes and and programs and whatnot. And I realized that dinosaurs were a gateway drug to science. And what I mean by that is like, I don't care if you're four years old or 400 years old, like dinosaurs are immediately grabby and exciting and engaging. And once you have that hook, it's easy to then turn the conversation into anything under the larger umbrella of life, biology, science, whatever. Uh, and yeah, so that's, I started doing more stuff online as well uh, when I started working in the museum. And there weren't a lot of people doing like kind of sci-com, like science-y entertainment mm-hmm. type of stuff with respect to specifically dinosaurs. Uh, and so I was like, I'm going to become the dinosaur whisperer. And here we are. Yeah, I doubt that there were any dinosaur influencers or social uh, media persons before you am i right i mean not dinosaur specifically i mean yeah. there were people doing stuff in like astrophysics and general yeah. like science education but not dinosaurs specifically yeah yeah i mean uh obviously you you have the masters in right in anthropology like peter mentioned so what is the uh, more interesting fascinating to you right now people or dinosaurs i mean people are always you know, incredibly fascinating. I mean, that's why I went to anthropology. It just answers so many questions uh, with respect to like, why do we look the way that we do? Why does society function the way it does? What so, do you like, mean, God? What? What do you mean, God? Creator? God bless. I don't right. think it's saying yeah. this. It's, it's easy. It's just one class. They're like, God. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. Give me my diploma. We're done. Uh, yeah. So like, I don't know. Anthropology, you're you're always an anthropologist because you're always, you A, you're always a person. I don't know if you guys knew that. Uh, and you're <laughs> surrounded by people, but like I, I'm fascinated with dinosaurs from an evolutionary biology standpoint. I think my favorite part about human, uh, well, about anthropology is figuring out like physically how humans evolved to be the way we are. And I really don't think there's a more, I was going to say ridiculous, but more amazing group of animals when it comes to like what mother nature and the evolutionary process can craft 
than dinosaurs. Like they're the greatest example of what this what life on this planet has been able to produce. Yeah, and they were in propaganda back then. I think they, they, that dinosaurs were described as bizarre creatures. And what is that that fascinates you the most about the dinosaurs? Um, I mean, you can first of all go size. Obviously, like when we think of dinosaurs, we think of them as being enormous. Although there were dinosaurs the size of like squirrels and house cats too. Um, the the suite of crazy different adaptations. Like, whether it's giant teeth or long necks or literally covered in plates and spikes. Like, there's so many weird features that we're not exactly sure what they were used for. And I think that's actually one of the reasons why I do, like, the study of dinosaurs, because it's an equalizer. In that if you are a lion scientist or, like, a lionologist, sure, a lionologist, <laughs> right? You can go and you can look at lions and you can see how they move, what they eat, how they take care of their young. But you can't watch a T-Rex walk down the street, so... Again, if you're four or 400, 400 years old, if you've done a little bit of reading, a little bit of research, your theories as to how or why Stegosaurus had plates and what they were used for can be just as valid as someone who has a PhD and has been doing this for 40 years. Because the thing I always say about weird dinosaur features, it's always either for fighting, flirting, or fanning, like thermoregulation. But most of the time, we just don't know. Just don't know. Yeah, I mean, uh, the... They're like uh, in pop culture. They are also like a special creatures. Like I don't think ever the animal uh, species made that such an impact on on our history in that way. Yeah, especially yeah. T Rex. Yeah, one hundred percent. T Rex is no offense to anyone else, but I do believe T Rex is America's dinosaur. It should be instead <laughs> of the bald eagle is our animal, but I really think it should be T Rex. I used to think it was underrated, but the more you learn about T-Rex, it's it's appropriately rated. King of the Dinosaurs, for sure. Yeah, so, so how do you craft it? Uh, how do you hone your craft to bring fossils back to, back to life? Because that was the part of your job. Was the tough part storytelling or to simplify scientific data and information for common people or to make it more, enga- more engaging, unique experience for everybody? I mean, all of the above. Like, when you think about science communication... We think about, like, the economy of language. What is the quickest, easiest way to get across the message you're trying to get across? And people gravitate towards stories, and they're captivating. And so if you can think about, and and I have over time, like, hone, like, how do I tell stories? What is the most efficient, fastest way to do that? As well as, like, really, I mean, I think about the thing I want to talk about, and then I go back to the beginning and think about what is the, like, the inroads or the on-ramp to talk about that thing. Because, like, you can't assume people give a crap about what you have to say, right? So you've got to think of, like, what is the engaging, captivating way that's personally relevant, ideally, that grabs people and brings them into the story. And I don't mean that just, like, talking and telling a story. I mean that, like, on social media as well. Like, we're inundated with thousands, millions of, of images and messages all day. We're just scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Like, what is the thing that's going to make someone stop, literally for, like, three seconds <laughs> to grab their attention amongst the sea of other information that's out there. And yeah, so it's... Okay. Go ahead. No, no, continue. No, I mean, that, that's just... those. Are, that's how what I kind of think about when I'm thinking about how do I engage and storytell in a way that's going to grab people that might not otherwise care, right? Because, like, there's a ton of people out there that already are huge dinosaur nerds or huge museum people. But, like, for me, that's not my audience because they're already bought in. My goal is to get more people that aren't bought into dinosaurs and science and museums engaged and excited 
and just like banging people over the head with information that aren't already really into it, it's not it's not helpful. It doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah, and you probably are starting, so to say, from a better place because, like you said, you you weren't interested initially in it, and you're not, uh, let's say, on the highest level of like mm-hmm. full scientist on it, so you can speak in the very you know, understandable language for the general audience to accept it. So that's probably like part of that. Yeah. And I never, I would never knock the scientists that do that type of thing or even communicate their science. We just do things slightly differently, but we all have the same goal. We're all just simply trying to get more people jazzed about science. Yeah. And Neil deGrasse spoke about it when he had his first interview as the director of Hayden Planetarium. Nobody cared. What he talked about, they cared because he was he was a director back then. Uh, I don't remember his uh, his story correctly, but he mentioned something funny like butts, and that just the that just the phrase they put in the newspaper. So that is it. And then he realized that he needed to simplify all this story for all the general audience, and that's how he became the narrator for uh, Cosmos and stuff like that. Yeah, deal is. Neil's great. I've been to, there are lots of museum parties at the Museum of Natural History in New York uh, during like December, during the holidays and Christmas parties and whatnot. Every department has a party. They get kind of competitive. The Astro party is always one of the best. Neil is giving out wine shots. He's a big wino. So he gives like, makes people do wine shots. And then, true story, there's a guy, there's a security guard at the museum who moonlights like second gig as a Michael Jackson impersonator. And he is very good. And every year, him and Neil get into like a, a Billy Jean dance-off during the party. <laughs> great. It's great. Wow. I, I didn't realize that was a thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah I, I feel stories about the drunk uh, scientists. <laughs> they were about these parties. But yeah, I mean... Uh, there are a lot. I'm not, I'm not allowed to t- tell everything. But we'll leave it there. <laughs> when we stop recording. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Please. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I had the chance to actually visit the American Museum of Natural History when I was in Europe. And uh, there, obviously, besides dinosaurs, there's also a tons of uh, prehistoric sculptures and similar. I remember one uh, mosquito, like a giant mosquito, was uh, portrayed. Uh, so that was fascinating. But uh, are you fascinated also by other prehistoric uh, you know, animals and creatures? Uh, does that interest you as well? Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, yeah, there's so many weird things that, I mean, well, 99% of all life that's ever existed on this planet is is no longer here. It's extinct. So, like, there are crazy bockers forms that have lived, not just during the time of dinosaurs, but during the 3.5-ish billion year history of life on Earth. Uh, but, you know, I picked a lane because I think dinosaurs are the best, and so I'm, those are uh, that's my brand, that's my thing, I go with dinosaurs, but you're right. The, that mosquito you mentioned, that thing is it's a malaria mosquito that's blown up 75 times. You're not used to seeing a mosquito mm. that's the size of like a dog. Uh, yeah, so actually, the museum does a really good job of not just with dinosaurs, but displaying the myriad forms of crazy life on this earth. Yeah, I remember when I when I see it, I, I was like, you know, you, you know that mosquitoes are disgusting, but like yeah. when you see it up close, it's like this thing is drinking my blood. That's catastrophic. <laughs> But the, the, the one of the, the most beautiful, I believe, besides, I know that Museum of Natural History is famous for dinosaurs as well, but I like the, the whale, the big whale in the room uh, that hangs above the ceiling. That that was the highlight for me. Yeah, yeah, that is one of the most iconic things in the city. When I do tours, the museum, we do a whole bit in there with that blue whale. It's, 
It's not real, by the way. It's not a taxidermied whale. Can't preserve aquatic life the way you can things like bears and lions. Uh, but it is a hollow fiberglass model that I don't know what the conversion is, but it weighs 21,000 pounds. I'm not sure what that is in kilograms. Around probably nine to 10,000 kilograms. A lot. That's the correct answer. Yeah. 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 The whale, that's incredibly impressive. It's 92 feet long. It's bonkers. Yeah. And have you maybe, when you are not obviously parting with Neil deGrasse, uh, have you maybe joined forces with uh, with some other paleontologists, maybe from the museum or somewhere on the field work? Um, I've gone on I've gone on a couple digs. Um, if you are in the United States, well, not just the United States, but pretty much any museum or research institution that works with dinosaur fossils helps sponsor digs, and they're always looking for volunteers because they need people to be chipping away at the rock. Uh, it's if you have you guys ever been? Have either of you ever been on a fossil hunt? Uh, no, unfortunately, I I actually think that we don't have any dinosaur fossil in the country. Right, I would have, I don't imagine somewhere yeah. else. Yeah, it's I mean, yeah. it's tough. It's not. I God bless the people that do that, but you're like on your hands and knees in the dirt, in the hot sun, just like very carefully chipping away at rock for hours, and you'll find like you'll find little plant fossils, you'll find dinosaur teeth. Uh, but the time and the patience that it takes to do that type of stuff, God bless the people that do it. Like you should go do it as, as a day trip, but I could never do that as my job. Yeah. Mark Loven, a paleontologist from Utah, we had him over as a guest. He talked actually about the process of uh, digging out the, the fossils. It's not like Alan Grant in Jurassic Park, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was speaking like there, uh, like about the fossils that are digged up today. Some will need five years of cleaning, working to, you know, eventually evaluate them in a scientific way and see yeah. what's the story about. So that that's amazing. And that's if you have like the grad the grad students to do it. Like there are literally fossils still in their protective field jackets in storage at the museum that have been there for a hundred years. Right. And there's just so many fossils and it really just waiting for more grad students to be able to Break those things open and clean them and, and check them out. Yeah. Times with less dynamite. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. Well, I say break open the field jacket. It's classic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mentioned in the intro that you you had the role in creating Museum Hack. So so what what is Museum Hack? Because I didn't research it enough. What is Museum Hack? <laughs> um, so... Um, Museum Hack is a company founded uh, by a man named Nick Gray. Uh, I was the third person he brought on. Uh, the idea was he started doing tours at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, the art museum. It's open late on Friday and Saturday nights. Uh, and Nick would lead what he called Renegade Museum Tours there, which is like, yo, it's Friday night, meet me on the front steps at 6.30 p.m. I'm going to show you five things you can't miss, three things I love, uh, and two things I want to steal. Bring a <laughs> and it was like bring a flask. We're gonna do like shots in the stairwell. And the idea was like, how do I get people that are my friends and my peers, frankly, like millennials, to come to these museums? Because museums do great work for school groups and for families and for slightly older people that are bought into a I'm throwing up air quotes traditional museum experience where there's a tour guide who's probably seventy and knows a shit ton about the space, uh, but maybe aren't the best people to engage new audiences that aren't already blocked, like I mentioned earlier, aren't already really excited about that place. So Nick started leading these renegade tours. Um, 
and they started to take off and I met him and I went on one. I was like, yo, I want to do this at the Museum of Natural History because like science is my thing. And so I wrote and designed our tour there. We started doing tours of, I started doing tours of the Met as well. I was doing it in the Museum of Natural History. And then they, they like, they took off. We were selling thousands of tickets and museums started to approach us being like, hey, you guys are really good at getting the the post cards to like 30 year olds in the door, which is a demographic we are not good at getting in the door. And so we started traveling to museums literally all over the world to kind of model out how do you market to millennials? What does great storytelling look like? How do you make a tour engaging? How do you make it interactive? How do you make people feel like they're VIPs? How do you like have organic like Instagram photo ops and turn your guests into the best marketers for the museum? Because like if your peers are posting and telling you about a thing they love, it is going to be so much more valuable than a, a giant faceless institution just posting and saying, oh, here, come come see us. Yeah, and so that's, definitely. that's how Museum Hack took off. And it's basically a similar idea to the dinosaurs. And there was a lot of overlap. I started doing the dinosaur stuff when I started doing Museum Hack. And it was like, how do we reach new people and get them excited and engaged in the space in a way that hasn't been done by their peers, not by a big institution and not by like academics or scientists? Yeah, and photographies are truly awesome. I saw they are from the, those photographies of you in the astronaut suit, rap, uh, rap uh, style, and ball, uh, dinosaur bones. That those are all from Museum Hack, right? Um, Most of them. Not, not the some of them. Well, I mean, if it's in a museum, yes. I worked for Sotheby's for a year, which is a giant auction house. Uh, yeah. We opened an apartment of. Uh, natural science and natural history. So yeah, we were selling spacesuits and dinosaur fossils, which was really interesting to see the non-academic commercial side of like science and the fossil trade. Because really, my job, whether it's doing dino stuff on the internet or like the tours, is I'm I'm throwing up air quotes again, selling science. And then so I went from like figuratively selling science to at Sotheby's literally selling the pieces and the artifacts and the ephemera and the specimens of science which was an interesting job to do for a year, but not, it's not where my heart is at. And so I'm not doing that anymore. Uh, back to the Yeah, but if they got the, but if they get their hands on the, on this uh, fossil of uh, Triceratops versus T-Rex, that is. Uh, yeah, Mark Lovin spoke about it. Yeah, yeah, Mark Lovin spoke about it, which, which is maybe for, in my opinion, the best fossil that you'll ever see, you should get back. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. You're talking about like the fighting T-Rex and the Triceratops? Yeah, yeah. And it's like uh, the, the sellers of this uh, fossil said like uh, the tail of the Triceratops is uh, hit the jaw of uh, T-Rex and broke it and T-Rex teeth are in his neck. Truly us. Yeah, yeah. Phenomenal oh. work. Yeah, there's actually animation somewhere on YouTube I came across. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, listening to you speak, uh, obviously, when you when you say about the engagement of people uh, of your age and even younger, I think that's really interesting because I think a lot of people, especially my age, maybe a little bit older, think of uh, museums as something boring. Uh, obviously, in our country, we don't have American Museum of Natural History, not on that kind of level, but I think it still carries some kind of I think you can always find something that interests you just if you get into the right institution and you just a matter of, you know, getting someone there like you spoke. Yeah, I mean, we can see, I don't care if it's a museum anywhere, like 
all the things in the museum you can see in a matter of seconds on your phone, right? So like, why, why am I going to this place with a bunch of old stuff that I have to be real quiet and they're going to tell me what's important. So like, how do, yeah, we thought a lot, how do we flip that script? Like, how do we make this come alive in a way that like relates to you and your life? Uh, and I really do feel like for me, like museums are like cathedrals, like they're cathedrals to science and life and learning and, and curiosity. Uh, but sometimes you're absolutely right. You just need like, like a friend to kind of like hold your hand for that first experience. Uh, cause I think like you just said, I think most people's perception of a museum experience is very different than like what we tried to do. And that's exactly why I try to do it that way. Yeah, I mean, it's like comparing this to this meme that is going around uh, right now. You know, this beautiful place, uh, mountains and lake and everything. And the guy who posted it said, it took me seven days to make this photo. And you just reply, whoa, and I saw it while taking a shit. <laughs> so, yeah. But I mean, the, the live experience is priceless. I mean, I think a lot of people forget that in our time and, and age. Uh, when I when I saw that whale in New York, I mean, I saw it a hundred times on the photos, but it's nothing like seeing it, you know, up yeah. close. There is a there is a pers personal experience that you know you can't like you can see a Colosseum on the pictures, but until you are there, until you feel the history, until you can touch it, I mean, it it, it will never match it. Fair. Yep. Yep. Yeah, and uh, back to the museum hack. How that uh, motto, uh, museums are fucking awesome, <laughs> came to be? <laughs> I don't know where, who made that slogan up or where that came from. Um, the logo was, it was like, that, yeah, it said museums are fucking awesome. Also, one tagline we had for a while was not your grandma's tour. <laughs> Which, right. But like, I, I those both spoke exactly, and they're kind of like, wait, yeah. what? They both spoke to exactly what we're trying to do. Like, this is not your yeah. normal museum experience. One is PG-1 and other is rated that. <laughs> right, right. And we'll, we wanted to find people, too, and let them know, like, this is not going to be the normal thing. Whenever your preconceived notion of a museum tour was, you better leave that at the door because this is not going to be that. And that also, I think, helped us kind of, like, narrow who we were marketing to. Because, like, there are people who want to go on, like, the normal tour, which is great. Uh, but we wanted very clear that, like, this is not that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, do you? Uh, I like. I haven't asked you. Uh, what, what's the favorite dinosaur? We haven't asked you that. Uh, my favorite dinosaur is a tie between Parasaurolophus and Deinonychus. Thank you for asking. Uh, <laughs> uh, I like Deinonychus. So Deinonychus is basically what you see in Jurassic Park, uh, but it had feathers. So Jurassic Park, the raptors you see in Jurassic Park, the, the Velociraptors are actually based off of Deinonychus. Steven Spielberg liked the name Velociraptor better. He thought it was scarier, more cinematic than Deinonychus. It's fair. So they went with the name Velociraptor. But in those movies, you're looking at something the size of a Deinonychus, but we now know that they were covered in feathers. So imagine that thing covered in feathers. Who knows what color? Maybe one day we'll figure that out. Um, there was a second part where it was like going with that. Oh, and also, just like culturally and historically... Deinonychus was the single dinosaur in the 70s that kind of, at least in pop culture, took dinosaurs in the common people's mind from these like slow, sluggish reptiles, like dragging their tails through the swamp to like active, warm blooded, like killers that are terrifying, that are like an actual like animal that you should revere and respect. And I think because of that, I think like Deinonychus changed the game in that way. So yeah, I, I got to go Deinonychus. And then Parasaurolophus is just fucking. Am I allowed to curse? 
I'm like, yeah. oh, no, no, Okay. Parasaurolophus is just fucking weird. Like, it's a giant duck-billed hadrosaur that had a meter-long nasal passage, so, like, of bone. So, like, it breathed in it, and then the air went backwards a meter, looped back around, and then out its mouth. It's like having a trombone attached to its skull. We think for, like, loud, like loud vocalizations and sounds, which could have been to woo mates. It could have been to scare away predators. You just don't know. Back to fighting or flirting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the documentary that I was watching, they were actually using it to flirt with other uh, females, I mean. But I don't remember correctly. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. yeah. For me, I, I'm a simple guy. Triceratops. Yeah. Okay. yeah. It's a great title. I love a lot of horns, shield, uh, shield head, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, and a powerhouse. Powerhouse, real powerhouse. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if you watch uh, the, the anime, Dinosaur King, as a kid, and he's u- using electric moves. <laughs> yeah, that does hype up the things. <laughs> uh, did you watch the, the, the apples? Uh, what's the name? Prehistoric Planet. Prehistoric Planet. Did you watch the, the documentary? What did you think yeah. about it? Beautiful. Beautiful. I like, I mean, I really enjoy that because it kind of speaks to the way I think about dinosaurs. Like, I don't, I get pretty annoyed when people send me, like, pictures of their kids, like, neon pink backpack with, like, orange triceratops character. <laughs> I'm like, that's cute. It's cute and all, but, like, I, these are the craziest group I've mentioned before. Like, they're the most insane group of animals Mother Nature has ever produced. And so, for me, like, taking them out of the kitty cartoonish uh, realm and also not necessarily in, like, the cinematic movie monster realm, like, but just as, like, animals... And I think the prehistoric planet did a really good job of shooting them as if it's just a nature documentary. And they were pretty good on, like, the narrative storytelling as well. The graphics look great. Uh, so I, I was on board. I like prehistoric planet a lot. I definitely recommend it to anyone, like, who wants to see great-looking dinosaurs on the screen. Yeah, I, I binge-watched it for all six episodes. Six, if I remember correctly. Five. Five, actually. Yeah. Uh, but they, they paid a lot of attention to mating of the dinosaurs, which is one of the themes that you are focused on, the sex life of dinosaurs. Yeah. And I never thought about it. Yeah. <laughs> you don't I think mean, about it. Sex sells. You, the second you start talking about sex in any context, people are like listening. So, and people mm-hmm. like, you just, let's well, sell this episode. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't think people generally think about dinosaur sex unless you bring yeah. it up and then it's like, wait a minute. Like, ha, ha, I don't, what is the angle? I, it's, what do you guys want to know? I can, I've done way too much research on dinosaur sex. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, uh, how did they do it? <laughs> In the air or on the land? Yeah. <laughs> Probably on the land. I, I mean, I can't think of any flying animals alive today that do it while flying. That'd be impressive. Yeah. Drive the mile uh, high club, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> As always, yeah. I mean, we. So, do you want me to give you like the quick sixty second? My here's my. All right, I'm gonna give you the sixty second dinosaur sex rip. So, uh, <laughs> we, you know, we can't go look at a dinosaur, so we're not really sure what's going on down there first. Uh, so we have to look at modern corollaries or modern relatives. So we look at reptiles and we look at birds. Birds are literally living dinosaurs, yeah. and birds and most reptiles like alligators and uh, crocodiles have cloacas, and cloacas are basically like one hole to rule them all so it's like it's one hole. Uh, yeah it's it's one hole out of which comes the pee the poop and the sexy time juices right and so so and then some reptiles have penises that are housed internally inside their cloacas that only come out during mating 
But either way, whether an alligator or a bird, they first practice something called, well, in order to mate, they practice something called a cloacal kiss, where they literally just push their cloacas together, and then the male sprays from the cloaca his genetic material, and then nine, not nine months, but nine months later, we have a baby, whatever. Uh, Sounds romantic. Right. And so, and there's no, there's no evidence of baculums. So baculums are penis bones and a lot of mammals, except for humans. You guys may know this. Uh, <laughs> we don't have baculums, but a lot of animals do, but there's no evidence in the fossil record of dinosaurs having baculums. So they probably did a cloacal kiss thing. How like literally they came together is really hard to say, you know, like T-Rex may have done some sort of kind of doggy style-ish thing. I've seen depictions of stegosaurus where they're basically like facing opposite directions they put their asses in the air and push them together that's one uh we don't we're just not really sure um there is a very funny theory from one i'm throwing up air quotes again pseudoscientific paleontologist who thought that because of the massive weight of sauropods so sauropods are your long neck dinosaurs you're like brontosaurus brachiosaurus that thing that type of thing because they weighed so much, he put forth a theory that they would have had to go to what he called sex lakes in order to mate uh -huh. so that the males wouldn't crush the females when they were mounted because of like a buoyancy, like water assist holding yeah. them up. There's no evidence whatsoever for this, but it's like a fun theory to think about. Yeah. I, Kama Sutra sounds just amateur yeah. for those poses, especially Stegosaurus. Yeah, that, that must have been a bitch for them, right? <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. like porcupines. Porcupines somehow make it work, so I'm sure Spike yeah. knows. Yeah, hedgehogs too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But is is it same for all dinosaurs, generally speaking, or is there some that do it especially differently that we can say? What, the I, mean, I would ask you. What do you think? You know what I mean? Because, like, like I said, we don't. We're not really sure. We just don't, we're not really sure. So your guesses and your theories, as long as they're like based on a little bit of evidence, we don't know. Yeah. Made through big. I just was reminded of a theory that someone had where like people were always wondering why T-Rex had tiny arms. And someone was like, oh, it's so that the males could tickle the backs of the females while mating. Yeah. Wow. Well, <laughs> that, that's not good. That's not good. Okay. You know, that, yeah, the Mark Lovin actually... And explain that, that uh, that's actually more badassery from T-Rex because he grabs nothing with his hands. He bites, chews, you know, so... Oh, doesn't chew, just... Yeah, drops in big drops. He swallows and swallow. Yeah. So that, that, that's the badassery, you know? Doesn't make sense. What is your go-to story about dinosaurs when you are on these tours or parties? And what would be your go-to story? Great question. Um... I'm going to, listen, I know too much about dinosaurs. So I'm going to give myself a challenge right now, and we'll see if this works out. I want you to give me a dinosaur or a group of dinosaurs, and I'll try to tell you my favorite thing about, or a good, like, short story about them. Oh, I like this. I like this. Um, let's go with my favorite, the uh, Triceratops. Okay. I don't have a lot of Triceratops stories. <laughs> no, I mean, I can give you, like, I don't know. It's true. I don't have, like, a Triceratops story. Um... The facts about Triceratops, you're right. They, people love them. They're uh, pretty impressive because they were able to stand and hold their own against Triceratops Rex. thing that people I don't think recognize about Triceratops is they have a giant toothless beak 
It's made out of keratin, which is the same that your fingernails are made out of. And Triceratops is really cool, but if you like Ceratopsians, which is the group that they're they're part of, there are like literally dozens and dozens of different types of uh, beaked and frail dinos um, that I think, at least visually, are incredibly even more stunning. Like if you've not looked up or heard of Styracosaurus, S-T-Y-R-A-C-O. How he looks uh, like. Styracosaurus. It has a frill like Triceratops. Instead of being like a filled in frill, it has eight spikes coming off of the frill. Yeah. It's yeah, the so metal badass Ceratopsian there is. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I loved the images of the depictions of uh, the one that Mark Lowen, which we talk a lot about in this episode, <laughs> I found out it's a uh, Cosmos Ceratops. Cosmos Ceratops? Yeah. Yeah, and he has the combined traits of Triceratops and uh, some other group of, uh, some other species of, uh, uh, oh, I don't know which one. But, uh, so that's why they choose this name, Cosmoceratops. It's, it actually swaps between these things. And, uh, well, next. I would say for, for those Ceratopsians, like they have such different shapes and sizes and types of those frills that those are probably used for intraspecies recognition uh, and more like mate selection. Showing off to the ladies. Uh, Brachiosaurus. Brachiosaurus. So Brachiosaurus is the long-necked dinosaur that we see in Jurassic Park. Um, and in Land Before Time. And is it the Land Before Time? I don't know. Uh, the, the, is it the protagonist of Brachiosaurus or is it like the, the other long neck? Uh, like, like, uh, like a Gronosaurus? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe the Diplodocus or something like that. Yeah. Well, so you got your, like, Diplodocus or Diplodocus, depending on who you talk to. Listen, you can pronounce dinosaurs however you want. Like, all names are made up. So, like, however you want to say it. Uh, but, yeah, like, Brontosaurus, Diplodocus, Apatosaurus. If you think about, like, an image of them maybe you've seen or just, like, a fossil, generally speaking, their neck and their back or their tail is kind of, like, horizontal to the ground. Versus when you think about Brachiosaurus, the whole thing is kind of, like, angled diagonally skyward. That yeah, it's more like... Yeah. yeah, its front legs are longer than its back legs, and so that's why it's angled kind of like a giraffe rather than, like, flat. And, in fact, the larger group of... So, sauropods are the long-neck groups, and one uh-huh. one group within sauropods are known as giraffe titans, and Brachiosaurus is one of them because they have that kind of giraffe type of thing. And these are the largest animals that ever walked the face of the earth. Uh-huh. Like, the amount of food they have had to eat literally on the daily just to survive is absolutely bonkers. Yeah, but there's a lot of just different theories on like how they even did that. Yeah, I don't know if that's like I'm not thinking if that was the protagonist, the plan before time. It was called Long Neck, so that was all. It's called Long Neck. Yeah, one of them. I don't think they say the species. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. That's right. I I never watched the land before time, so I stay out of it. Let's go with controversial one, Spinosaurus. Oh, you mean like the new alligator duck T-Rex thingy? Like stork? Like it's some mashup. It's so weird because it's very different than most dinosaurs that we know. Uh, you know at this point, we think at this point, that it spent a certain amount of its life in water, which is very abnormal dinosaurs. The thing that set, I believe, that I talk about a lot that sets dinosaurs apart is that they were the first major group of animals to completely abandon life in water and live solely on land. And that's like what makes a dinosaur a dinosaur. If you think about an alligator or a crocodile, which is a close relative as a reptile, its legs are kind of split out to the side. 
right? Which makes sense in water. You're pushing water side to side. But when you come on land, it's like walking while trying to do a push-up. Like it's not an efficient way to move. Dinosaur hips and dinosaur legs, much like mammals like us later, their legs come straight down under their body. It's a much more efficient way to move on land. And I think that's probably the single most important adaptation that allowed the larger dinosaur group to A, abandon life in water and live solely on land for about 200 million years until yeah. the asteroid. Much, much longer than humans. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. But fun. Yeah. But Spinosaurus is, I mean, it's crazy and awesome when we're looking and it speaks to why we love dinosaurs. We, there's yeah. always more to cover. They're weird. We don't really know. They're scary. They're enigmatic. Like Spinosaurus is a great gateway to the rest of the dinosaurs yeah. too. Yeah. Truly bizarre creature. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and, uh, I think he, uh, this one was in Jurassic World Dominion, the latest one. Uh, Terzinosaurus, if I'm pronouncing it right. Yeah. But you said I can say how I want. Correct. <laughs> right. there, there is no Saurus like there is an Osaurus. Is what it's, when <laughs> yeah. So this is this animal had the largest claws of any animal that's ever lived. Like meter-long claws uh, for a toothless, beaked herbivore. Yeah. Just, and, oh, and we also know that they had some level of federation. Probably a giant, at least some set of like tail feathers, because they had something known as a pygostyle. And a pygostyle in modern birds is when the last few vertebrae on the tail are fused together and they support like big tail feathers. And so if you find that same type of fossil in the bones of a dinosaur, it's a good indication there were feathers attached there. So just a weird thing with the, with the giant tail feather, no teeth, the largest claws of any animal ever, and the whole animal is the size of a T Rex. Just Again, put that next. I mean, that's just as weird as Spinosaurus. Like yeah. those guys. Uh, and this is the one actually good for sketching uh, back of the partner <laughs> with yeah. long claws. Exactly. What about the, 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 the one also from Land Before Time? I, I forgot the name with the, like, yeah, is... Well, that's the one he was talking about. Yeah, well, well, yeah. Kind of, was it the flying one? Or no, the... no, the flying one. But, you know, the one uh, it's trombone for the head. I don't you know that. It's a pronounce. Petrie is... Uh, Petrie is a flying one. A flying yeah. one. What, oh, what is that one named? I, I forgot. Yeah, I forgot this one. But uh, I can't remember. <laughs> Ducky. Stop. Yeah, yeah, you're good. Yeah, Ducky is a type of duck-billed hadrosaur, and that Parasaurolophus as I mentioned earlier, is a type of hadrosaur. Yeah, 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 also. yeah, there are a few other hadrosaurs that had weird kind of head ornamentation stuff. Um, but I don't know if they say, again, they're, they're not scientific enough to like have, have a listing of the specific species. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Allosaurus. Allosaurus. Honestly, Allosaurus for me is like the perfect proportion killing machine, right? It's not small and like, like a small fast water, like a Velociraptor that you might be able to like take in a fight or hide from. Uh, it's not like a T-Rex, which is like enormous, you know, kind of probably almost like a professional wrestler. Like Allosaurus is like that. And also T-Rex had like these tiny, puny arms with two claws that probably weren't useful. Allosaurus had big, strong, re-clawed arms. And so like, and it fits, I think, again, that perfect like sweet spot of proportion killing machine. It's not too big, not too small, but like personally, I think is one of the more terrifying and almost even kind of underrated dinosaurs. Yeah, it's yeah. it's the underdog T Rex always in this movie. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, it was on the cover once on my encyclopedia. <laughs> and we know that one. So we talk about T-Rex and Triceratops fighting. We know that uh, Allosaurus had fights with Stegosaurus. Uh, there is one fossil in particular that is a great example of this, where there's a Stegosaurus tail spike, at least the shape and the size of it, a hole from one in the pelvis of an Allosaurus. Wow. Like, we know this dude got hit in the junk by a Peter tail spike. And then the we can tell by the pathology, like the way that a bone heals or doesn't heal after a wound, that the infection it got infected and it killed the guy, killed the Allosaurus. That uh, definitely hurts. That was one of the worst deaths in history yeah, recorded. Yeah. Yeah. A nut shot that then you died from. Just wow. Yeah. And I mean those tails from Stegosaurus, they were like pretty decent weapon, right? <laughs> But yeah. are they actually, because of these scales on Stegosaurus, are they actually the soft tissue or hard bones? Like, Well, you had you had spikes on the back of the tail, like depending on yeah. the species, four to six, and they were up to a meter long, and those are made out of solid bone. That We're pretty sure they used that tail to swing those as a defense mechanism. The plates on its back are also made out of bone, but they're not actually fused to the spine. Like we always see depictions of them in movies or the museum with those plates like sticking straight up in the air. But they're not fused to the spine, and we know they were crisscrossed with channels of blood vessels close to the skin because we actually see them in the, the fossils. And so it's a distinct possibility that they weren't always straight up. They could have flopped down kind of on its side and then flipped up and potentially even changed colors for either, again, fighting, flirting, or fanning, either to make itself look bigger and scare away a predator, kind of like cats do, or maybe to try to win a mate by like showing off these things, having them blush red. Uh, or maybe to flip them up and catch either wind or the sun to warm up or cool down. Again, weird feature of a dinosaur. We just got to speculate on exactly how it was used. Yeah. Yeah. That's more dinosaurs. You want? I, I, I have nothing more. <laughs> uh, okay. I have one more. Uh, sure. Because I want to know. Uh, Titanos, uh, Titanosaurus, uh, the yeah. one that in prehistoric planet, it, it has these like... Uh, Air sex that it fills with air in the prehistoric planet. What okay. about him? Uh, I mean, those are speculative. Uh, I love seeing... Listen, we're never going to... know. I'm not going to say never. That's unscientific to say never. We're probably not in our lifetimes, at least, going to know exactly what the, the coloration, the feathers, the weird integuments, the strange features like air sacs, the actual like shape, how much like fat versus how much muscle. Like We're probably not going to know exactly... So I love it. Some people get mad, like, oh, that's not scientifically accurate. We don't know what is exactly scientifically accurate. So if it's within the realm, the realm of reason, based on the evidence and based on modern animals that are somewhat similar, why not have fun with these things and, like, speculate about what they may have looked like? And so those crazy air sacs on literally the largest animal that's ever walked, why not? Yeah. Let's go. Why? <laughs> yeah. I will need to, to use Mark Lowen once again as my source <laughs> because we actually talked about pigmentation and he said that okay. we can actually really soon have the real color of the dinosaur. Yeah, but he was, he was talking about this. We have the skin. We were finding yeah. more and more skin, but, yeah. you know, we could get to color very soon. Yeah. It's oh. easy to guess the feathers, but uh, what colors they were, but skin, not so. Uh, uh, but skin, yeah. not yeah. Some feathers have preserved melanosomes, which is like a microscopic structure that in modern birds, they give the feathers certain pigmentations. So you find really well-preserved. 
feather and feather impressions that have those melanosomes. You can make good guesses about the colors of the feathers, but you're right. With skin, it's not quite as easy, but I'm never going to say like we can't do that because, you know, we've come, it's ironic that dinosaur science is a relatively young field, right? People have been studying physics and astronomy and math and history and sociology forever. Like the term dinosaur wasn't even coined until 18, in the mid 1800s, right? Yeah. So it's a relatively young field and it really hasn't been until the last 20 years or so that we're starting to be able to like really figure out things like color and shape uh, and eggs and, you know, and so who knows, who knows what the, the next, the future of paleontology holds, but it's, it's bright. Yeah. And especially thinking that initial perception of dinosaurs was completely different than we have now. Uh, Even yeah, 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And today we are, we are still finding this. Uh, I mean, I never believed that we will find such things like uh, woolly mammoths whole. Have you maybe heard of this guy Reeves from Alaska? No. Uh, you trying yeah. to create a woolly mammoth? He's eating them, actually, because he has this lens. Uh, he bought all those lens in Alaska where he was on the Joe Rogan's podcast. You should watch and uh, he spoke about it, and uh, permafrost is uh, melting down, and he has thousands and thousands of mammoths, tusks, uh, flesh, everything. And he actually was speaking in the episode that he, that he actually cooked mammoth meat. And that's crazy. And, and he ate it? Yeah. yeah. I think I think he has a documentary that's called Boneyard Alaska. Yeah, Boneyard Alaska. It's on Daily Motion, and it can only... There's no pirate version. But so, yeah. So, and we tried it. We tried to find it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and he said that obviously the mammoth uh, meat that is uh, five or 10,000 years old is, uh, tastes like uh, shoelaces. Yeah. <laughs> it's fair. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. And. What about the, all these adaptations of dinosaurs we spoke about? Land before time, we mentioned Jurassic Park. What is your favorite? Favorite, wait, favorite, oh, like me. Anyway, cartoon. Jurassic Park, it's the greatest movie ever made in the history of cinema, obviously. <laughs> I mean, like, I kind of... A little bit subjective on that. <laughs> I kind of joke, but like Jurassic Park was ahead of its time as like yeah. a movie... Like as a thriller, it's just like a fun. You could argue that you could easily argue it's Steven Spielberg's best movie. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's great. I think yeah. Jurassic Park is great. And I'm speaking of the original first yeah. Jurassic. I'm I don't want to talk about. I mean, there are some decent parts of the rest, but that first one I, I really love. And like you guys, like we talked about earlier, uh, prehistoric planet. The animals look great. Yeah. I'd like to see. I'd like to see more more uh, depictions like that for sure. I mean. Prehistoric planet, if you didn't know that dinosaurs are actually exist, uh, the di- dinosaurs are extinct, you would think that th- those are the real scenes from nature, and that's, that's diabolic. Yeah. yeah. The no, problem of CGI not. and... Yeah. It's just like, oh, these... It, it, that's one of the things you can start to realize. Like, oh, these are animal. Just like any other. I mean, they're crazy, but these aren't, like, just a made-up movie monster thing. These things are real. Yeah. World, and... Uh, what about this? Uh, the latest one, Dominion. Uh, it's cohabitation between. It's uh, a piece of shit. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> it's co- uh, it's the attempt of the cohabitation between dinosaurs and humans, which we'll, we we won't share, obviously. Yeah. But w- what's your take on it? What do you think about it when you saw the movie? movie? 
about the movie or about like cohabitation? About it both. I know about movie, but probably. The movie, any movie that has dinosaurs, <laughs> I, w- I want to go see just like to see what they look like, how they slide in the picture. And I like that they started to like, they show the pyro raptor with feathers. Like that thing was scary. Yeah, like something that is going to be able to chase you and like underwater as well. Like bonkers. Uh, the Thorizinosaurus, we talked about that one earlier. Like you crazy. People were mad. They're like, why did it? Like, if it's an herbivore, why did it kill the deer? It's like, yeah. what? To show me some large herbivores that are not territorial. But you know what I mean? Like, everyone is. Um, and so, like, I love to see the depiction of the dinosaurs. The cohabitation thing is very weird on a lot of different levels. Like, we couldn't cohabitate on with them on an island when there were, like, eight of them. And now we're just going to have a bunch of different species running wild everywhere. And there's no, there's no real discussion of, like, what that does to... The like we're so concerned now about like animals going extinct and we're we're eradicating natural environments through deforestation or through human development. So there's no environments or areas for animals to live. But now all of a sudden we're going to put a bunch of these giant things there and a assume they're going to be able to survive. It's like if you took like a zebra that lived in a zoo its whole life and then just put it out in the savanna. Like, is it going to? I don't know. Is it going to survive past one generation? The heads just I don't know. And they were going to make one of the very bad film. <laughs> yeah no exactly they're making a movie i get it i get it yeah you're the suspension of disbelief when when in your bio in twitter or on instagram it says dinosaur expert right yes and yeah. some of the people that you work with uh describe you as dinosaur expert which you are and but but when you're in the room with uh paleontologists that have phd and if you introduce yourself as the dinosaur expert how do they react yeah, that's my I don't, my... I, don't int- I would not introduce myself to them as a dinosaur expert. I would say that, like I'm a science communicator and my yeah. my focus is dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. And then it's then it goes to like I love you and what you do. Like and then I usually like it's all about revering I mean it's the same it's funny because like you pose the question as if they would be like either offended or like who's this guy? What is he doing? And we dealt with a lot of that with museum hat. It's like, who are these people that are not employed of the museum coming in here, doing renegade tours and talking about being like totally unstation, making jokes, doing gossip. But again, like I try to remind these people, we're all on the same team. Like they're a di- actual dinosaur scientist. You do incredible work. I could never do this. I never know nearly as much as you do. My job is to help take the stuff that you love and you're passionate about and your knowledge and communicate it to other audiences as well. So a lot of it, I think, is that initial like, Helping people understand we're all on the same team here. Now I'm just saying more people love dinosaurs. And then I will probably have some very like specific nerdy questions about their whatever their study species or area uh-huh. is. Yeah, yeah, obviously. And I mean there are a lot of people and there certainly were through the history that didn't have the PhD that made I mean, who who gave Aristotle the PhD? <laughs> Lesbian. Yeah. And- yeah, the guys like Adam Smith in economy, the Sir Richard Dolan, he wasn't a paleontologist, he was a biologist. But yeah. Yeah, and yeah, then the beauty of the internet is you can get edu- pretty well educated. Yeah. That's also the thing. If that you yourself has read yeah. more about dinosaurs than a lot of guys that actually studied paleontology. I think it's probably like a, yeah, I think a lot of times maybe you are very focused in one area or one species. And like you just said, like the internet, has allowed me to learn a shit ton about a shit ton of different dinosaurs. Like I've been 
I've been talking about dinosaurs through every platform, live, virtual, through with every uh, age group, through every walk of life, through every weird roads to get there. Like I've been doing this for like over a decade. So if I'm not a dinosaur expert at this point, then I don't know who is. Uh-huh. And let's talk about the other area of your expertise, anthropology. In your master's thesis, I read a couple of pages. Well, a little bit more than a couple of pages. <laughs> and you wrote about the acceptance of evolution as a fact by the general public. And I, as a someone uh, who is raised and living in orthodox-influenced society, where creationism is sacred and unquestionable truth, in a system where this theory of evolution is just another paragraphy in biology book uh, and nothing special, I'm interested to hear your opinion about the role of schools to work more actively in developing, developing critical thinking on this matter and to subdue this dogmatism in, your, in this area. What do you think about it? It's funny because like, I haven't talked about the master's thesis in forever. Uh, and the, the, the problem you just said is like, how do we increase critical thinking in schools? It's like, that's the same issue that we've been dealing with like forever especially in the United States, where supposedly we have separation of church and state. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that we in China, I mean, I don't want to get on an education high horse, but critical thinking in the ways in which you evaluate information in the world around you and resources are more important than the actual information itself at this point, right? Like, well, like I said earlier, you can, on your phone, in a matter of seconds, you have pretty much all of the knowledge of human history, right? So yes. It, how do you think about that? How do you evaluate what's right, what's wrong? How do you like logically and rationally approach evidence? Like, I think that is just as important. And I think a lot of times we unfortunately kind of beat that out of kids. Like, this is what you need to know. Here's what's important on the test, which I understand. Uh, but I think a lot of it also should be like, how do we know that? How do we find this out? What do you think about this? Where does your curiosity leap when you bring up dinosaurs or whatever topic? But I think... I think most schools, and I think generally speaking, like most parts of the country here in the United States, do a pretty decent job of, of talking about these things. But I think you definitely still hear about like the crazy creationists that won't. The line I've heard so many times is that the devil put dinosaur fossils in the ground to trick people into believing in evolution. <laughs> I can read that one for the first time. That's great. Really? Yeah. I mean, I think that gives a lot of credit to the devil. Like, that's a long con. It's just so... But yeah, I, and you, those are the funny things and you hear about that. And I think when we're in a political moment that we are right now where everything is about, like, identity politics and, like, who are you? What do you represent? that those kind of stories get pushed to the front. But I don't, I, I think we have made strides over the last decade or so in longer. Yeah. So, uh, a lot less of the creationism and a lot more of like the critical thinking. And I think the beauty is that like, I'm not going to sit here and a good educator is not going to sit here and tell you what to think. Like, here's what some people think. Here's what other people think. Here's the question. Do a little bit of research. And then let's talk about how you think about this. Yeah. That situation sometimes seems like, uh, two parts of the medal because you now have the theory of evolution proposed as the absolute truth as well and not like critical one and you have creationism as undoubtable dogma and but I mean there's beauty in theory of evolution that actually the biggest the biggest opponent of theory of evolution the lack of transitional fossils actually became the biggest ally when we found us the uh, uh, and that's beauty that's what science is <laughs> 
transitional fossils, it's such a weird, like, the problem is, let's say you have, like, a T-Rex here, then you have something that kind of looks like a T-Rex a few millions later. Well, that wouldn't work because they want to stay. Let's step back. Let's say you had a Stegosaurus here, and then you have something that looked kind of like a Stegosaurus a few million years later. Uh, and you're like, oh, wait, where's the transition? Okay, cool. We find something right in the middle. Oh, we found the transitional fossil. Did we? Because now, though, now the next question would be like, well, where's the transition between those two? And the tra- Because every time you find that middle one, you've actually found two more gaps where you want to find a transitional fossil. And because fossil record is incredibly, it, it's wild anything turns into a fossil at all. Yeah. And you're always going to have, you're always going to have those gaps and you keep on finding them. Uh, and, and so in that way, like a transitional fossil, everything's a transitional fossil mm-hmm. because everything is always changing. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Just a couple of bil- millions and millions of years to search for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And before we wrap up, do you have a message for our listeners? Do I have, wow, great question. Do I have a message? Uh, follow me on the socials. I'm Dinosaur Whisperer <laughs> on Instagram. Um, I, listen, wow, that's a good message. Like a, good little, big, a good message. Listen, I just implore you to not let life beat the childlike curiosity and wonder out of you. I think as we get older, we like lose that wonder and curiosity with the natural world. I mean, it's absolutely insane we exist at all. Like the, yeah. the incredible small probability of us having this conversation right now, like life started on this planet 3.5 billion years ago, and now we we're on a zoo. Like yeah. it's insane. <laughs> and so I just, I just everyone to continue to be curious. Uh, and if something it just really like, people could say like, look at this fucking nerd, what a dork, he loves dinosaurs. Have you seen a fucking dinosaur? Like they're bonkers. If something like grabs you and captivates you and makes you excited, like share that in love with the world. I love, I don't care what you are passionate about. If you're excited and passionate about something as an adult, I will fall in love with you. <laughs> that, yeah. That's a good message. And we have a message as well. Uh, we have a little tradition. We, we have the quote or verse or anecdote on Montenegrin language and we translate it to English. And uh, Luca prepared one quote okay. for you. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I know, I know we talked a lot about the past in this episode in very scientific way, but, uh, I have a quote from uh, one former prime minister of ours, uh, Veljko Vlakovic, who said something interesting uh, in our language. Lako je podati po prošlosti, hrabrosti zaviriti u budućnost. And on English it would say, it is easy to walk in, uh, in the past. True courage is to look into the future. I like that. I like that. Yeah. And thank you for this renegade dinosaur talk. Yeah. <laughs> Of course. Thank you, guys. Any any chance to nerd out about dinosaurs, I'm there. So I appreciate the time having the conversation. We stay genuine, uncensored, and unscripted. And we always will, as we have to order our usual. Share us, subscribe us, and stay tuned until the next Wednesday. Because all.